Area 941 podcast are produced and distributed by Community Powered 94.1 KPFA Radio. Please help support Area 941 at kpfa.org. This is the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. I'm Richard Walensky, and we're talking about books, about theater, about film, about television, and from time to time, even about KPFA, Pacifica Radio. My guest is David Sedaris, whose latest book is Calypso, earlier books, Me Talk Pretty, One Day, Let's Explore Diabetes with Owls, Recently, a collection of diaries, volume one, Theft by Finding, is now three, six, nine different books. Ten, including that one. Nine of them are essays, and then there's the diaries. Let me start by asking you a little about the diaries. What prompted you to publish those early diaries? Well, whenever I read out loud, and it doesn't matter if I'm on a book tour or if I'm on a lecture tour, I usually end by reading things from my diary. But the things that I read from my diary at the end of a show are always funny, and they're always funny in the same general same way. Like they have to end with a laugh. If they don't end with a laugh, then you almost feel like you told a joke in front of an audience that didn't go over well. I don't know. People always like them, and so I thought, well, I'll publish those one day. And it was my editor who said, what if you put in the book things that aren't funny, and what if you go back and you put in some things that maybe to you wouldn't obviously be of interest to people. So I tried that. And, uh, you know, if you read the book, you might think I write four lines a week. I mean, I write pages and pages every day, but out of those pages and pages I write every day, I don't know that any of it would be of interest to anyone else. So what kind of stuff would you would you write? Like, I had kippers for breakfast? No, I got to San Francisco yesterday at 7.30 in the morning, and the hotel, the Pride Parade, started at 10.30 and went on till about 4. And I went out for different reasons during that period, and I could see a lot of my hotel window. You know, I wrote about how there's this inclination to include. You don't want anyone to feel excluded, right? So, you know, at more and more initials are put on to LGBT, right? But I think when it comes to a parade, I think exclusions are kind of an okay idea. And I think that that parade could have been a tight one-hour parade. And I think you could have gone to people and said, look, you're, you're, you know, you're people who work at Citibank who are allies of gay people and you're in blue T-shirts. I'm sorry, that's not good enough. You can't be in the parade because somebody has to watch it, right? I would just pull out those people who were – you know, who were just kind of boring and walking along. And you could argue, well, they want to express themselves. But, I mean, did gay people not write the book on how to express themselves? Like, there's just no show business to it. It's kind of like giving an award to everyone. At least the gay parade should be entertaining. Macy's Thanksgiving parade, I can't decide, like, oh, I support Thanksgiving, and they're not going to allow me to walk in the Thanksgiving parade and put it on television. I mean, I guess I thought... You know, maybe the Pride Parade in Red Bluffs or Council Bluffs, Iowa, right? That would be something, you know? I mean, that takes something. But to march, you know, in a city where it just seems like every other person is gay, I don't know. It's just not my thing. I'm just not a parade goer. So this is what you're writing about in your diary. Yeah. 
And I don't know that it would be of interest to anyone else, but I mean, that's what I wrote about this morning and tomorrow. I mean, I have no idea what the rest of my day will be like, but tomorrow morning. I mean, that's the thing about being on a book tour is you meet people. I met someone the other day and she told me about a friend of hers who has a pug and pugs, apparently their eyes pop out. They're notorious for that happening. And this pug had an operation on one of its eyes and he had a cone around its neck and he was just worrying the thing and whining and she thought, I oh, could just she, for her own peace and you know peace of mind, she took it off for a minute, and the pug scratched at his eye with his hind foot, and his eye popped out of his head, and he ate it. This woman told me that story in Albuquerque, and then I repeated it to someone else, and she said, "I'm a psychiatrist with the county jail, and there was a guy who was in jail, and he dug his eye out of his head with a spoon, both of them, and he ate one, but he couldn't find the other." Like he'd planned on eating that one too, but that's a problem when you completely blind yourself. You can't see it. Yeah, finding stuff's going to be hard, especially, you know, those first few minutes. Are people walking <laughs> up to you and telling you bizarre tales in order to see whether you will turn them into something? Yeah, sometimes they do, but the tales that they have to tell aren't that. You know, I, I just feel like if we just have a conversation, it would be more interesting. Stuff will come up, but sometimes if people have something and they're preparing it, right? It's pretty rare for the prepared, you know, people mean well and they'll come up and the, the story they prepared was they were driving to work and they heard something on the radio and they laughed really hard and they had to pull over. And, you know, that's very nice and everything, but it's not it's not going into my diary. you got to not only have your eye pop out or dig your eye out, but you've got to eat it in order to make my diary. <laughs> How many steps have you taken today? Today I am at, I'm just looking at that. I am at 10,165 steps. So, you know, it's a day's young, but it's a start. Wait, now, when did you wake up? I got up early. I got up like at 6. Okay, so what did you do to get those first two or 3,000 steps? I went out and got my boyfriend coffee, tea rather, and I walked a mile and then we had breakfast, and then we walked to the ferry terminal building. Where's the hotel? It's the Four Seasons on Market Street. And then we walked back. And then tonight I'm going to walk from my hotel to the bookstore, which is at Opera Plaza. And I'm going to walk this afternoon, or maybe I'll go to the fitness center at the hotel. And you wear the Fitbit when you do that so that you get yeah, more. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I have decided that I, I'm trying to be less obsessive, and I've only gone to 19,000 the most. My record in a day oh. is 91,000. That's up from the book. Yeah. Well, David Sedaris, let's talk a little about Calypso. Okay, so the diary comes out. At that point, were many of the essays in Calypso written or not? Yeah, I've never sat down thinking, well, I guess I'll write a book now. But most of the essays in Calypso were published, you know, in the New Yorker or Paris Review or yeah. here or there since my last essay collection came out in 2013. And I go on these tours every fall and every spring. And so I start off with like four or five new story essays and I read them out loud and go back to the room and rewrite and read and rewrite. So all of the essays in the book, gosh, they were probably, each one of them was probably read in front of an audience, I don't know, minimum of like 60 times. And each time they get revised slightly to mm -hmm. just kind of pump up what works and what doesn't? Yeah. At first, it's big stuff, right? Yeah. Like, I don't think the beginning works, and I don't think the ending works, and 
And then it becomes, oh, what if I changed this word? Or maybe even instead of didn't here, I'll just write do, did not. You know, it, it becomes that, you know, just little technical things at the end. And then at some point you kind of go, well, this is as far as I could go with it, and then it gets published? Uh, no, I say this is as far as I can go with it, and then I show it to my editor, and my editor makes suggestions, and then I work with her, and that's when I send it to the New Yorker, and then I work with the New Yorker's editors, and then... So it's been edited within an inch of his life, you know, by the time it's in the book. Well, if it's going to the New Yorker versus another magazine, it's going to be fact-checked. Is that an issue where certain ones you're going, well, there are exaggerations and I don't want to send that to the New Yorker? No, no. I mean, there's something that I'm working on with them right now. And I went to a firing range well, with my older sister when I was uh, in 2012, she and I went. So I think if the, when the fact checker calls the firing range, they're going to freak out because they don't give you the story. They're going to say, do you own a hat that has a Blackwater logo on it? Are you a former police officer? Do the targets at your firing range look like this? Do you sell a Rossi? Were you selling a Rossi? I don't even know anything about guns, right. but I know it was Rossi R-352 or something like that, four ninety right? So chances are they can freak out at that point and say, I don't know what you're talking about. So that's a problem with fact checkers because, you know, I've had that happen before and people just, they think the whole article is about them when actually this is about the guy who gave us a safety training course. It's just a tiny part of the story and I don't say anything bad about him. Right. You know, I say he's maybe not someone you'd choose as a friend, but you wouldn't mind having him as a neighbor. Well, they're not going to call your father or Hugh or... Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, they will. Mm-hmm. So Hugh will get a call saying, did you actually go to bed early that night? Yeah. They'll check the weather records. You know, if I said that I was in Sydney and it was 104 degrees, I'll look at the weather records for Sydney. And if it was 105 degrees, I'll say, you know, we need to change that. On their end, it comes from lawsuit. You know, they don't want to, they don't want people suing them. And... I don't want to be wrong if I don't have to, you know. I mean, somebody recently wrote something about me. He came to my house and, you know, wrote something about me. And he said that I had lace curtains in the bedroom. And I don't have lace curtains. And I wouldn't have lace curtains. I mean, that's something that could have been cleared up easily enough if somebody called and said what your bedroom curtains looked like. On the other hand, I, I don't really care. The other side of it is, for the New Yorker, of course, is that these days you damn well better fact check because of the political situation. Everything has to be perfect. Obviously, it may not matter with a comic essay, but it's going to matter when Jane Mayer is writing something. Right. But what's interesting to me is that it matters when Jane Mayer is writing something and it matters when I'm writing something, but it doesn't matter when the president is saying something. Or when his press secretary is saying something, like that seems to be okay, right? But if you're writing about a root canal, then the weather and everything has to be exact. But I have to say, though, that, again, I don't want to be wrong. So it just adds another layer of work, you know, to a story that's going to be in The New Yorker. It just adds in a whole other layer of, you know, because sometimes 
Well, this guy told me a story recently, and I thought he had said that he shot somebody in the head, but he shot somebody in the neck, right? So I sent him the story first, and then he cleared it up before it went to the New Yorker. But let's say somebody says um, a job title, and they say, oh, no, actually, my job title is this. And you're like, oh, that would mean repeating that word. You know what I mean? So it just means work like that, like, uh, that's a headache. Does that change how you're writing your diary in the sense that you try to be a little bit more accurate because you know it could come back to roost? No. I mean, my diary, I've never given my diary to anybody. And I just sold my diary. I sold all my papers to Yale. And so it never occurred to me ever that anybody would read my diaries, right? Read the actual diaries. But if your diary says, I went out and had lobster at a restaurant, Mm -hmm. then that restaurant would have served lobster. But if you'd forgotten the name of the restaurant or gave the wrong name, it's going to come back to haunt you in five years. So you want to get it right the first time in case you ever use the material later on. Yeah. I mean, I did that uh, a couple of days ago and it was no big deal. It was I was on the tour and it was a reference to, uh, I think that very thing, a restaurant that we went to. And I thought, oh, I might need it for later. But then other times, well, like if you're overhearing someone in a restaurant, these two men in the elevator yesterday. And there were these two gay guys in the elevator. And I say that they're gay guys because they were from out of town and they were dressed for the parade, right? And there was that poster in the elevator. It was a Four Seasons, or Jackson Hole. Four Seasons, Jackson Hole. And one of the guys turned to the other and said, that's in Wisconsin. There's not a hill, a mountain in all of the entire state of Wisconsin. (laughs) And so I just... I started to write down, you know, I was in the elevator with them, what the one guy was wearing. <laughs> I, thought, I don't know that that's that important, but just the Jackson Hole, Wisconsin. I was in New York a few weeks ago, and I was at the New York Public Library. And, and there was a tourist beside me on the street who was saying to his child, that's where Night in the Museum was filmed. You know, same with great authority. It's just always a good reminder, you know, because I probably say things just as wrong and as stupid all the time. I just pray that not everyone is like me and taking notes and is going to write about it in their diary. Which will find its way to some permanent place somewhere else and somebody else will find it in 50 years. You can put conditions on your papers, right? So my condition is my diary can't be read until after I'm dead. But even so, I, I... I tend to think even, I think, what did I do? Why did I do that? You wouldn't believe the pettiness to be found in my diary. I mean, oh, pages about, you know, there were hard pillows at my hotel, you know, or the hotel thinks it's a nice hotel. But if you were really a nice hotel, you wouldn't have that brand of shampoo in it. Yeah, there's a lot of that. You know, while people are, their children are being put in cages and you know, ancestral villages are burned. I'm very, very concerned over the quality of the shampoo at a Kempler hotel. <laughs> David Sedaris, one thing I noticed about Calypso, which is a little bit different than other books you've written before then, is that you're more willing to handle serious issues such as the death of your sister. At least that's from my perspective. Is is that something that you're seeing a change in your own writing, or am I just picking? Well, no. I mean, I think if my sister had killed herself 15 years ago, I still would have written about it. It was a difficult thing to write about because I still wanted it to have laughter in it. 
I mean, it was a horrible event, but I didn't want to get up in front of an audience and read something that would just be like a tome, you know. So it was it was figuring out where to add things and how to add them. And, and the laughs in that essay work kind of as release valves, you know. Like sometimes what people are laughing at isn't at the end of the day that funny, but everything that came before it was so horrible that you have these little valves in the story that are releasing. So it makes it more difficult to craft, I think, for me, to craft just in terms of where to put those release valves. You know, I mean, I've been doing this for a long time, so it's an interesting challenge for me. When you're working in front of an audience, a lot of humor comes out of timing. When you're writing something, it doesn't. Right. How do you transition? Is there any specific method you use, or is it just something in your head that goes, this will work this way? Transition from making sure that the timing isn't what's funny to ensuring that as I'm reading it, I'm going to chuckle. Right. The most I can do is a double space, right? Because you don't want to be that gimmicky. You don't want to try to recreate the pause, the exact pause on the page, you know, and have like three inches between one word and another one. I mean, sometimes the biggest laugh you get is just from looking up from the podium. I guess I figure my first allegiance is to the page, right? And then whatever comes out in performing it is a separate issue. But I'm hoping that those laughs will be on the page. I don't think it works to try to recreate timing on a page. Essays tend to start one place and go somewhere else and and then circle back. Is it just the first draft you just start writing and see where it goes and then maybe go, oh, I remember something and look it up in your diary and then just keep writing? Yeah, I mean, usually the first draft has everything in it. You know, so first, I have like a 12-page attention span, right? So nothing's going to be longer than 12 pages. Or, you know, all right, every now and then will be something 13 or 14, but never have I written something that was like 20, 25 pages, so I just put everything in the first draft, and then it's like you've got like a big piece of stone, and then you pull out your chisel, and you chisel away. You get rid of this, and get rid of this, and get rid of this, until you see your essay in there. You see, you know, because that's often a problem for me, is that something's about too many things. So, <laughs> well, And a lot of times you're that. attached to them, because you think, well, that got a big laugh. I don't want to get rid of that. But sometimes you have to. Are you formulating them originally on going when you're doing your long walks? I mean, is that what you're doing when you're picking up the garbage? No, I try not to think too much about writing when I'm walking. I don't like to get ahead of myself. And it's interesting when you're writing about your own life, you knew what happened. But there are a lot of details in the mix that, I don't know, I'd rather recall those things at my desk and feel surprised Someone said that, you know, if you don't surprise yourself, you're not going to surprise a reader. So, and there were many essays in the book that I surprised myself by including something that I hadn't meant. You know, like in one of the essays, I talk about the last time I saw my sister. And it does not make me look good at all. And I didn't mean to put that in that essay. And then I did one night. I put that in. And I thought, am I really doing this? And then I couldn't, I couldn't undo it once I had done it. And I'm really ultimately glad that I put it in there. But every time I read that essay out loud, I think, is this 
me? Did I do this? Did I shut the door in my sister's face and never see her or speak to her again? Not after she was raped and not after she was evicted. Like, never talk to her again. And it's like, yeah, I guess I did. At what point did you realize, was it when she died, that you thought, oh, my God, that last time? The last time I saw her, I thought... The thing about my sister is that it was really speaking to her took like a big toll on you, right? Because every time you talked to her, it was all this stuff dragged up from the past or it was other things about her life that you really didn't kind of didn't. You wouldn't mind a friend telling you stuff like this, but you don't want to know that about your sister. And then there would often be conflict, right? I don't I hate having any kind of conflict with people. Like if I had a fight, if you and I had a fight, I would think about it every day for months. Whereas other people would just be like, well, that happened, and they just kind of move on. I was on tour, and I, I knew that if I engaged with Tiffany, then I, I would lose months, and I didn't have that. And I thought, oh, I'll call her later. We'll do this later. And then the later never happened. You don't expect your sister to die either at that point. No. No, but it felt too much like letting myself off the hook to say, oh, I figured we'd do this later, and then time slipped away. I don't know. It just felt like that would be giving myself an out that I didn't necessarily deserve. If an audience is going to judge me harshly or a reader is going to judge me harshly for that, I can live with that. How does your family feel about their participation in all your essays? Are they cool with that? My brother recently went through some changes, uh, you know, in his personal life, and then he said, I don't want you talking about this and this. And so I took it out, you know. I wanted to ask him why, but then I thought, well, that doesn't really matter. All that matters is he doesn't want it in there, so I took it out. How about your dad? Is he cool with what's in there? Well, I talked to someone at the New York Times just a week before the book came out, and she said, you know, there's a lot of stuff about your dad in this book that's kind of hard. And I said, yeah, I thought he'd be dead by now. I mean... I really did. I mean, he's so old, you know, like I thought he'd be dead by the time the book came out. And at the time that I talked to the New York Times woman, I still had like another two weeks before the book came out. And I thought, thought, well, he could still be dead, you know, within the next two weeks. You know, my dad has probably the healthiest ego of anyone I've ever known. According to my father, he has never made a mistake or a wrong turn ever in his life. So he doesn't recognize criticism. I've always been shocked by that, by his certainty, you know, because I'm such an uncertain. It's like he got the certainty for everyone in the family, right? Like I often say about my boyfriend, Hugh, his dad was a novelist, and Hugh and his brothers and his sister are all artistic and all so good at what they do, so good. But none of them care to show their work to anyone. You can't. You have to, I have to snoop to see Hugh's paintings. It's like his dad got the ambition for everyone in the family, and there was none left over for anyone else. And my father got the confidence. Does your father read your books? No, but I wouldn't. Two people have written books about me that wanted to interview me, and I said, that's fine. I said, but I'll never, I'll never read the book. You know, if you told me, oh, here's a review or here's a article about you, never, ever in a million years read it. Have you ever read your Wikipedia page? Never. Well, there's one line in it that just cracked me up. 
He enjoys collecting litter. It's really well put. <laughs> Do you really enjoy picking up the litter? I enjoy the, the effect that it has. I've interviewed you now a couple of times since you began picking up the litter. When I have Hector and I'm walking him and I'm going under Bart, you always come to my mind and I start picking up litter. Hmm. And I, it's, well, that's it, nice. I mean, it's weird. It's like I know where the garbage pails are. And so when I see the garbage pail, I'm going, oh, David Sedaris, and I start picking up the litter. It's odd the looks people give you in a city because when I'm in the country, you know, it's different. But it's odd the looks people in a city will give you. Like let's say if there's a McDonald's bag lying on the sidewalk and there's a trash can right there. And if people see you walking and they see you pick down and put it in the trash can, you just did something they didn't do that they kind of should have done. Right, so the looks that they give you are there's a little bit of shame in there. What I hear a lot in England is "well done," which is they give you little pats on the head. Well done. But I was in San Francisco this morning, and I looked into the gutter, and there was a hypodermic needle. See, that's, that's a little bit. I mean, that's when, like where I live now, you don't really have to worry. My biggest problem are there's so many slugs in England. If you throw a beer can down. Slugs race to the beer can, and then they drown in there. And so you've got a beer can with an inch of beer in it and 15 drowned slugs, and it's been baking in the sun, and that smells something fierce, right? So that's my main concern because I get that on my hands, and I get it on my clothes, and and then I have places to be. I'm going to go to the fitness center. You know, I'm going to be there in a couple hours, and... And so I arrive filthy, and that's okay with me, but stinky. Don't you wear gloves? No, I have some. If I, you know, Somebody where I live defecates in his pants a lot and then throws, takes his pants and underpants off, throws them out the window. So I have bags within bags that I can collect that with. Okay. And then I carry uh, gloves in case I need them for something for a special occasion. David Sedaris, Calypso. The title of the essay collection, the other day when I was reading it, I recall that there's a cat in there named Calypso. Is that right? Yes. And it just passes through. And then I was looking in the Calypso essay today, and I realized I didn't see the cat. It was from a different essay. And I'm thinking, why did he name this book Calypso? It's such a good question. It's such a good question. I wish I had a better answer. <laughs> I named it Calypso because my next book's going to have a long title, and I thought maybe I should take a break from long titles. And I'm so stupid, I wasn't even thinking about the story, Calypso. It's just a dumb name for a cat. You know, what it's like when your cat has a double life, right. and it's being fed by people and has a different, and who name it something stupid like Calypso. So then that turns out to be the name of the book. I guess I wanted something that sounded like kind of breezy, you know, <laughs> and I wanted a title that was just one word. You named a fox, Carol. You, you name all the animals in your neighborhood, I take it, the wild animals. Well, Hugh is the one who really named Carol, Carol. But I came up with the name. I was on tour. I was in Seattle about a month ago, and I was walking to Starbucks. And so you take Fred or Frederick, and you stitch it to Dante, Fredante. Fredante would be... Like a good name for a cat or a hedgehog. I can't wait to apply it to a creature. It would be a good toad, too, for Dante. There was a, a raccoon that was living near my, in my backyard eating everything in sight. All of the succulents were just completely wiped out. 
and I didn't know where it was. My neighbor saw it and just said, oh, look up there. That's chubby. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I was in Albuquerque, and there they call raccoons trash pandas. You know, I've only seen two raccoons in my life. Really? Once it was in Chicago, and once it was in Boise, Idaho. I've seen them dead on the side of the road, but I grew up, we know lots of possums, but not raccoons. Well, here we have raccoons, we have possums. When I'm in London, any time I want, any evening I want, I can see a fox. If I go out for a walk, like after 11 o'clock at night, I'll see a fox. In London? In London. They're right there in the center of town. You can't not see them. And in Sussex, I can see a hedgehog whenever I want. If I go out at night, I'll find a hedgehog. What do hedgehogs look like? They're bristly. To me, they look like doorstops. You know, the, the biggest that they're going to get is like a loaf of bread. Gosh, they have pointy noses and beady eyes that don't seem, you know, when you look at their eye, it's just like a, a bead of oil right there. And sharp little cat teeth. And their only defense really is prayer. You know, they just say, please don't kill me, please don't kill me, please don't kill me. They go out at night and they eat slugs and I've come upon them in the road or by the side of the road and they just roll into a ball. You know, they can do that much. And you can just pick the ball right up. I haven't done it, but people do it all the time. David Sedaris, there's nothing about Brexit in your book, though I guess people in England are talking about it. Yeah, Americans don't realize it, but... The headline of every British newspaper every day is, what the hell are we going to do about Brexit? Nobody knows what to do about it. Nobody knows. It's such a complicated thing. You know, if it weren't for Brexit, I would have my nose rubbed in Donald Trump every day. But I look at that sort of like my Italian friends when Berlusconi was in power. I knew they didn't vote for Berlusconi. He was just an embarrassment. I wrote about politics in this book just a bit in the way that, you know, my dad is a Republican. So, you know, we had a huge fight after the election and then we just kind of don't talk about it anymore because he's so very old. He's 95. I don't want the last words that I say to him to be ugly. So we just don't talk about it, which is a shame because I'd like to get inside the head of somebody who thinks things are going great, you know? Is he still a Trump supporter? Oh, yeah. Even after all of this? All of what? He would say is the media blowing out of proportion. The important thing, if Adolf Hitler came from the grave and said, I'll save you $17 on your taxes, my dad would vote for him. Anybody who would save him. And that's all that matters. The rest of the stuff doesn't matter. But the fact that he could save some money on his taxes, that's, what's, that's, that's the important thing. I guess the rest of your family kind of has the same view as you do versus yeah. your father. Mm -hmm. When he leaves the room, you can talk, but when he walks in, pfft. Yeah. I mean, we had the big argument after the election. You know, his attitude is always, you don't have any idea what you're talking about. You don't know anything. When actually I read, you know, several papers every day, and I think I have a fairly good idea of what I'm talking about. But, you know, like a lot of people, I think my dad, when my dad, when Fox News came along, my dad was mainly a financial Republican. You know, he just wanted to keep more of his own money. But Fox News convinced him that he wasn't conservative enough. And then he started rethinking his position on certain issues, right? Like my father was always fine with somebody having an abortion, but not anymore. North Carolina voted to make gay marriage unconstitutional. This was before it became legal nationwide. They voted to make it unconstitutional. 
And then that passed. And then they voted again to make it extra, 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 extra special unconstitutional. And I just happened to be in North Carolina after the election, and my dad went out of his way to tell me he voted to make it extra, 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 extra unconstitutional. And I said, why would you do that? And he said, well, you've got these girls, and they're in college, and they don't know. I said, are you talking about college lesbians? I said, you know, like you know, like a lot of young women, they go off to college, and they decide, you know, they'll have a relationship with another woman, and then they think, oh, it's not for me or whatever. What does that have to do with anything? And obviously he heard that from someone, and he heard that, you know, on one of his, maybe Rush Limbaugh was talking, somebody was calling in, and he didn't quite grasp all of it. He tried to grab it, so there was still some of it under his nails. You know, I remember thinking at the time, like, gosh, why are you even telling me this? It's, a, it's sort of the way I feel I'm, when I meet people who didn't vote. I always think, why don't you lie? I mean, I would be so embarrassed to tell someone I didn't vote, I would lie about it. But the fact that someone is, they're so fine with it that they won't even bother lying about it, that's shocking to me. Well, there's an article in the Times about Trump supporters doubling down. Right, I read that. One woman goes, none of my friends will talk to me. And my thought was, number one, why did you say anything? And number two, if you go over to the dark side and you tell them, what do you expect them to do? <laughs> I thought the same thing when she said that. None of her friends would talk to her anymore. But I wondered, was she talking to them with Obama? Is it truly like a one-sided thing? Are you on Facebook? Do you do much Facebook stuff? No. I mean, I have a Facebook page, but I've never looked at it. I've never looked at anyone's Facebook page. I have friends who will sometimes post something public. We Most of what we do is just friend to friends, and I keep my friends as people I actually know. A friend of mine posted something the other day about, I don't remember what was, anti-Trump thing, and suddenly he was getting these people commenting on it, trolls, just going to his page. I've never seen leftist trolls. I've only seen Trump trolls. Well, I was on book tour a couple of years ago, uh, last year rather, and I was at Politics and Prose in Washington, D.C., and this woman said, what do you think about Donald Trump? And I said, I said, I have something. I wrote something. I said, it's in the Paris Review. Yeah, but what do you think about? And I said, that's eh, not really my subject. I'm not an original thinker that way. I know people who, like Sarah Vowell, is an origin. I feel like she's an original thinker that way. And I love hearing what she has to say, but I'm not going to say anything you haven't heard already. And then the woman pressed a third time, and then I said, okay, I hate Donald Trump. I said, I would like to go back in time. I'd like to build a time machine and go back and smother him in his crib. So it turns out the woman's on CNN, and she tweets that, and then it goes to a conservative website, and then by the time I go to bed, I'm getting all these death threats, which I don't take them seriously, but it's just a lot of people hating on me, right? And for something I would do with a time machine. Right. So my lecture agent said, uh, the Kathy Griffiths thing had just happened. He said, I think you need to prepare a statement. Just prepare one. So I did, and it was, I am so sorry I misspoke. Instead of building a time machine and going back and smothering Donald Trump in his crib, I'd go back a little further and convince his mother to have an abortion. I mean, it's so ridiculous. We're talking about what I would do with a time machine. You're not on Twitter, I take it, either. No. I don't understand people getting on Twitter and saying things that will clearly come back to haunt them. I mean, why would you do that? 
I mean, I, you, I mean, she was just talking to you. That's just a conversation. You didn't know she was. No, you know. no, she didn't tell me that she was. It was a good reminder that you're never talking to a room full of people anymore. You're always talking to the world. That somebody's recording you or somebody's tweeting out what you said and. You know, a lot of times you misspeak. You do misspeak. And a lot of times you tell a joke that doesn't land, right? And so you just have to be so careful now. I mean, it must be worse if people cared about you. Do you know what I mean? I mean, maybe people care about me a little bit more than they care about the person who served me coffee this morning. But but I'm no Roseanne. I mean, you're sort of a celebrity, or are you? I mean, I don't know. Pretty sorry excuse for one, I think. I mean, people know your name and they hear your voice and they fill up your lecture halls. So there's something there. How does it make you feel? I mean, does that change you at all? Is it weird to have strangers walk up to you? You know, a stranger walked up to me this morning. You and I were in San Francisco and we were having coffee and a stranger walked up to me. And I got to say, all I ever wanted was that stranger to walk up to me when really? I was a kid. All my life, that's all I ever wanted. When I sign books and people say, oh, my God, you signed books and for 10 hours, and that must have been awful. It's like having people stand up and wait in line to tell you how much they love you. I've never seen the downside to that. I mean, it's all I ever wanted. I got to say, I love it. It's interesting. When I talked to Roseanne during her two weeks as a leftist about four years ago, she wrote basically incoherent book, I said, what's it like being Roseanne? And she said, the only thing good about being a celebrity is that you can get into any restaurant anytime. Well, you know, I was minding my own business in Paris in 2000, and it was midnight, and the phone rang, and my boyfriend answered it, and then he said, it's for you. I think it's Roseanne. And it was Roseanne, and she called me, and she got my number from somebody, and she was in a hotel in London, and she was jet-lagged, and she was bored, and so she called me, and she talked at me, you know, for an hour and a half. Because it was Roseanne, it was, you know, fascinating. You know, she sang a couple times. She broke into song. She uh, she was very candid. You know, the things that she the questions she answered, I wouldn't. You know, I mean, I wouldn't have been that candid with somebody. But the thing is, like, I can't imagine calling somebody at midnight who I don't know. So it's kind of a power thing, right? You're famous. You're a big star, so you call someone you you don't know at midnight, and they'll listen to you for an hour and a half, right? If she was just somebody who, who I don't know, like one of my neighbors or something like that, they never would have done that. And I'm not saying I don't have no complaints about it, the the experience, none, but... Somebody said to me a while ago, I met somebody who's a friend of hers and said, oh, she wanted your number. And I said, eh, don't give it to her, you know. I got the, the feeling from her and, and I was sort of defending her when she, all of this stuff came down just because she seemed so lost. Well, she's crazy. I yeah. mean, she's crazy. On the one hand, if you get involved in a big project with a crazy person, they're going to be crazy eventually. So you got to be prepared for that. But at the same time... I don't know. I kind of wondered why they didn't just release a statement and say, look, she's crazy. You know, we give crazy people breaks all the time. So, I mean, that's where I'm at with her. I mean, I didn't watch her old show or her new show. You know, I know she's got a lot of problems. And so maybe we need to look at what happened through that lens and just say, 
Well, when I wrote on Facebook, she's crazy. On a, you know, I mean, just leave it alone. She's nuts. Because uh-huh. I met her and I, I talked to her, you know. And the only time she was coherent during the entire interview was when we were talking about her, her show, which I hadn't seen, but I faked it. And we got a good half hour of her talking about her old show. Because when she talked about anything else, it was just, you know, scattered. And the response was, she's horrible, she's racist, she's evil, blah, blah, blah. And I realized nobody cared. Yeah. Nobody cared at all. I mean, they were going to say she was evil, she was horrible, she's but a it- racist. But if somebody's crazy like that, they're going to say whatever, you know, they're going to say what, what it was she tweeted, tweeted. but they're, they're going to say, you know, I mean, they're going to say all, all kinds of things. If you're crazy, I don't know how responsible you are. I've spent my time around crazy people, you know, and it always seems like the biggest thing that they are is crazy. Do you know what I mean? Like, oh my goodness, if you go into a, a mental institution, the things that you're going to hear... But I got to say, you would say to somebody, you know, the biggest thing you are is not racist or homophobic. The biggest thing you are is crazy. And I think that's the story with her. David Sedaris, when you're looking for topics for an essay, where do you start? I have a list of things to write essays about, and sometimes I turn to them. Like recently, I was informed that you're not supposed to say homosexual anymore that I think GLAD released this, right? That homosexual would like take me back. If you called me a homosexual, that would take me back, back, back to a period of time where that was considered a mental disorder and it would cause me great pain. And I sort of hate being told what I'm supposed to be offended by. You know, if you called me a homosexual, I wouldn't care. I wouldn't give it a second thought. I wouldn't, I don't understand why everybody has to rebrand right? So now we're supposed to be queer. And it's like, why do we have to rebrand? Anyway, so I I thought, well, that's something to write an essay about. A lot of times, that story I told you earlier about the pug, that could be the beginning of a story. It's not necessarily all about people digging their eyes out, but I think it'd be a good introduction. And so maybe if I were to take the way it is in my diary and then clean it up a little bit, because of my diary, you know, it's a first draft, so clean it up. Maybe I'll think, maybe a second paragraph will come out of it, and that'll lead to a third and a fourth and a fifth. That, Again, that's not about people digging their eyes out or about dogs' eyes popping out, but who knows? So I've got a list of things to write about, and then a lot of times I just sit at my desk and stuff happens. It almost seems like a musician could say you were sort of writing a song and that you know, that's the intro to the song, and then the song is going to be a little bit different from that, but you're not sure what that's going to be, but it's got to connect up somehow. Well, you know, like when you listen to an album of standards, sometimes there'll be a song, you know, that you've listened to thousands of times, but you never knew there was an opening, right. you know, an opening bit. And I guess the, for some reason or another that people decided, ah, the opening made the song too long or whatever. So that happens sometimes, you know, the opening bit will be cut out of what I've written. I mean, it's me cutting it out, but I don't know. People say that to me all the time. I ain't going to run out of things to write about. And I think, well, if I write about my life, I don't know why I would run out of things to write about. I mean, if I'm alive, right, I don't go out looking for things to write about 
but things come to me. I don't know if you're patient, you know. I talk to enough writers, and they, where do you get your ideas? Well, you know, you could come up with 50 ideas just sitting in a room. Right. But I understand that question, though, because the writers who I admire, and I want that's what I want to say, where do you get your ideas from? But I know what the answer is, but I guess you'd have to be them. I mean, you're not going to get a tumor removed and feed it to a, a turtle. Uh, without understanding somewhere along the line that this the possibility you're going to write about it, for example. It sounds so funny when someone else says it. <laughs> it but, just seemed normal to me. I mean, it just seemed to me like, well, I don't want to waste it. I want the tumor out, and I don't want to waste it. So I might as well feed it to a turtle. But then it's funny when somebody else relates that. Then it sounds crazy to me. But it didn't sound crazy when I did it. Yeah, but you also knew as you were doing it that there was something in there potentially, right? Yeah, well, I'd written before about how, you know, if you had your tonsils out, your cat would want to eat your tonsils. I mean, I'd just written about that. I don't know, it started off in my diary, and then maybe I mentioned it over dinner one night, and then people were like kind of horrified, but in a way that I like. When I had my tumor out, I thought, why not, you know? It's stuff like that that the audience can relate to, that people think, oh, I had a thing once, and I did that. You know, I fell down when I was on my tour a couple of weeks ago. I fell down and I tore my knee open and a big scab developed on it. And I stayed with a friend one night in Minneapolis and I, I, I was wearing shorts and I just absentmindedly was picking at my scab, right? And I came away with some and I thought, I bet her cat would want to eat this scab. Anyway, I threw it out. I really love this person and I didn't want her to take it the wrong way. So basically, when you're writing, you start somewhere, and then you just kind of write. And if it works, it works. And if it doesn't, Yeah, I try not to put matter. too much pressure on it. My contract with The New Yorker is I don't take assignments from them. I didn't want to be in a position where I had to give them a certain thing, you know, a certain number of articles a year. Their deal is that they get first look at everything I write. So, mm. you know, it always feels good to be in there. I write every day, but I just sit down without too much... I try not to put too much pressure on it. When you're on tour, you don't do that. You're just taking your notes. When I go on tour, I write in my diary every day, and I can rewrite things. On this last tour, I gave the commencement address at Oberlin. Generally, when you do a commencement address, you're just reading it once. Right. And then you get up there, and you read it once, and it's like reading anything once. You think, oh, I should have cut the opening paragraph. Oh, this could have been funnier. Or I should have rewarded this. So I wrote it while I was on tour, and then I would read it out loud to the audiences. And I knew that those were different because they weren't going to be graduating. But I read it at least 10 times. I wrote it from the ground up on tour and read it a good 10 times before I got to Oberlin. Uh, we pretty much run out of time. David Sedaris, Calypso was out. Uh, second volume of Diaries coming out soon? or It'll probably be, uh, I don't know, another couple of years, I suppose. Another collection of essays down the road. Down the road. And the rest of the time you're just going on tour and... <laughs> yeah, doing, I'm doing my thing. One other question, actually. Sure. Exit 57 was something you did with the Talent family? That was a sketch comedy show my sister had uh, in 1993 or four, And it was with Stephen Colbert and Paul Danello and Mitch Rouse. And so I helped write some things for it. 
And that was kind of at the beginning of your career. Well, I never really wanted to write for television, but Amy asked me to help her write a few things. And the thing about TV is you have to be a team player in a way that, you know, I'm so spoiled just writing my own stuff. I mean, I remember we wrote this one sketch, and it was um, an airplane. And the pilot comes on and says, you know, there's an engine problem. We're going to crash into the ocean, and everyone's going to die. In the meantime, drinks are half price. And so the first person orders one of those complicated drinks and pays with a 20. You know how irritating that is? And so we wrote that and was really happy with it. But then Stephen Colbert lost several family members in a plane crash, so never saw the air. Feedback on this and other Radio Walensky podcasts is appreciated. You can write to bookwaves at hotmail.com and feel free to search out other interviews at bookwaves.com or on the kpfa.org website. Until next time, I'm Richard Walensky on the Area 941 Radio Walensky podcast. <laughs>